Hey, welcome back to How the F*** Was That a Hit? And I'm Quintana, and I'm here with, of course, my great partner, Tim Foster. Um, Tim is the rock guy, the musician, uh, the actual musician. And I'm, you know, as always, I'm just kind of the, the pop culture guy. Um, but today we're going to talk about something that's really in my wheelhouse, and that is a, a little gem of funk slash R&B from the late 70s. And that was really, you know, that was my wheelhouse, man. That's 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 what I was all about. And in fact, this group was probably, yeah, maybe, if not, like I would, I was such a music nerd. I would rank my groups. Really? I would have a top, David's top 10. And each week I would have a different that's top funny. 10. And <laughs> I would, they would change. Yeah. Like in my head, they would change. Um, but I think the Brothers Johnson was always like near the top of the charts for me. Now, were you ranking all these via your eight track? Back no, no, I'd have a notebook. Oh, and I would have all of them in there. And, and then I would have like a big celebration in my head where I was going to unveil my top 10 music groups, you know, wow. do the, the countdown. Yeah, I did. And then I would have my top, my top hits. I would have all my top hits. Like there was the radio top hits, but I had my own. Well, did you have the bubbling under like hidden no. waiting to <laughs> no. come up? Big mover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't have that. Number, number seven with a bullet. But you know what? If I would have thought it gave it a little more thought, I probably would have. Right. I would have put horse to bed on. Like put, yeah. put a song down. But this, this was like, this was, again, this was my lane at late seventies, very, very early eighties, uh, funk R and B. And so one of the biggest artists during that period was the Brothers Johnson. Brothers Johnson were out of L.A. It was um, George was George. George was Lightning Legs. George played the guitar and he was the vocalist. Man, he had such a sweet soul voice. He really did have a sweet voice. Yeah. And and uh, Louis was uh, Thunder Thumbs. And he was he was just a master of that slap bass. You know, that came out in the late 70s. Uh, Larry Graham, you know, was one of the originators of that from Sly and the Family Stone. Did they did they do slap bass in like the music you liked that 80, that, you know, that kind of like rock and roll kind of yeah. stuff? You know, not really until later. I mean, slap bass kind of came into everything at some point. But uh, I think in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it wasn't it was really pretty much only in funk or maybe some of the yeah. soul. By the way, this is my area. You're saying this is your area of expertise. This is an area I know so little about because. I really was not a music, like every, all my friends were music people when they were kids. I wasn't, I was a comic book guy and I liked music, but I never really heard the music I liked on the radio that much. Cause I was into, this is really weird. I was into Elvis. I was into big band and I was really, really, really into boogie woogie piano music, huh. which where do you hear that in the mid seventies? But somehow I heard it and I thought it was the coolest thing. So I wasn't that excited. Like all my friends are to kiss and I thought they seemed dumb. And so anyway, so that period I was pretty out. I didn't get into it till a little later in my teens. So the late seventies uh, was really, I was pretty checked out of that, but, and I had never actually heard this song until maybe about five years ago, Yeah, which is weird. Cause it was a huge hit. It was a huge hit. So what we're talking about is strawberry letter 23 by the brothers Johnson, which hit number five in uh, 1977, September of 1977. So if you look at the top 10 for 1977, I mean, it's first of all, it reminds you of how eclectic radio was then. in the late 70s radio stations led by top 40 was such an eclectic. You had such an eclectic playlist, right? They actually would play country. 
then they would play like a movie, you know, uh, a song from a movie. Oh, yeah. And then they would play something by, you know, a rock band and they would play a rap or what? I was going to say, 1977, I don't think yeah, they were let's playing say disco, disco. Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah. yeah a couple, yeah, a couple years later. That's right. So the number one song when this was the hit its height was Best of My Love by The Emotions, which I want people will call that a disco song. But Best of My Love is really a lot funkier than a disco song if you listen to it. Yeah. Um, it had the disco beat, it had that speed, right? Yeah. But it was, it's, it's a funky, it's a real funk song. And then number two, which is a song, which we might want to freaking do a show on was float on by the floaters. Um, and then don't stop by Fleetwood Mac. Keep it coming. Love by Casey and the sunshine band. One of their weaker, one of their weaker, uh, one of their weaker bits, but it did hit number four, right? Maybe it yeah. went higher. And then of course, strawberry letter 23. But if you look below that, you had Andy Gibb, ELO, the star Wars theme. Yeah. Right. I mean, see, really an eclectic period. Well, you know, but that is funny. You mentioned that the movie hits were a big thing then because for a long time, the biggest selling records, like LP records, not seven inches, uh, were often soundtracks for movies and soundtracks for plays because they had a long lifespan. So you could sell hundreds of thousands of copies of that because a Broadway play might run for a long time. Whereas in the old days, usually a band or a record would have a fairly short time. You know, it would it would have its moment, and then it would be old hat a year later, and that's not really true with movie sound. No, no, it, or, or or a musical. Yeah, right? exactly. Because uh, like Fiddler on the Roof, right? Precisely. Every time somebody goes and sees it, they go out and buy the freaking thing, right? right. That could and be thirty year. That could be a thirty year span. Yeah. So those records, you know, it, there was a real big move to get a hit on a like on a movie soundtrack or on, on a uh, musical soundtrack because it could really, really have a long last and you could make a lot of money off. So the labels love that. And of course, mm -hmm. the, the artists, if you could get into that, you would get your royalties and stuff. So. So, so in September, when this came out, right, I mean, it was a very, very eclectic, eclectic top 20. I think people like to say 77, oh, disco. But no, man, I mean, Elvis Presley had a hit on the top 20 way down. Because uh, he Mac. died. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac, uh, Foreigner, James Taylor, Rita Coolidge. So it really, really was eclectic, right? Yeah. I don't think we can really label it as oh, disco. Yes, disco was a big part of it, right? Didn't Saturday Night Fever come out in 77 or was that 78? It, it came out around this time. And right. basically that was the game changer. Once Saturday Night Fever hit, then it was disco everything. And I remember I had as a kid, I even had like the Superman soundtrack disco. I mean, everything was disco. Yeah. So I think that was when that era officially peaked was right when that soundtrack came out. And then yeah. it was like all disco all the time. Well, Saturday Night, I think I feel Saturday Night Fever was the peak of disco. Like that's yeah. when it hit a tight. And after that, it was all down. Yeah. Because that's when people were just sick of it. And if you look at the charts after that, it really starts moving. So uh, R&B music started moving away from disco. I mean, there's still disco, obviously. Sure. Um, but it started getting, that's when Sugar Hill Gang, right? You started hearing that Curtis Blow. Um, you, these rappers from back right. east started moving in. So, yeah, I think you're right. Um, Johnny Rivers had a hit in the top 20. Like, wow. This is a dude from like the late 50s, Which right? Song? Early 60s. Uh, slow dancing, swaying to the music. Yeah, yeah. Like, that was a big hit for him. Wow. Yeah, so it's very eclectic. But Strawberry Letter 23 hit number five. So Strawberry Letter 23 is such an amazing song in, in the sense that, one, I don't think many people know it's a cover. Like the Brothers Johnson did not make that right no. it was a cover not was a, originally it was it, yeah they made they made it but they didn't write it it was originally done by a young man and i mean that a yeah. young actually a young prodigy yeah. by the name of shuggy shuggy otis shuggy otis shuggy otis the son of r&b royalty um 
Johnny Otis. Yeah. And um, he uh, he did that. Shuggy was playing guitar at age two. He was in his dad's band at 11. They used to put a fake mustache and sunglasses on him so he could get into the clubs and play the guitar. And by the age of 18, he had his own album called Freedom Flight. And this was a song on there called Strawberry Letter 23. Hello, my love. And so a little bit of background. So Johnny Otis was a major, major, major force in the development of American rhythm and blues music. He not only had a band and he backed so many incredible artists like Etta James. Uh, and I don't know, you can list probably 50 people that he backed and had an, an influence on their career because he had a really great ear and he was very, uh, very giving, like he was really supportive of the scene. And I think the single most interesting thing about Johnny Otis is he's the only guy that I know of who was a white guy who passed as black. I know. He was Greek, but he, he basically passed. Let, everyone, let everyone think he was black. And he married a, a black Filipino woman, and that was Shuggy's mom. Yeah. And that was extraordinarily unique at that point. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I, when you when I read up on Johnny Otis, my jaw dropped. Yeah. Because I'm like, hold it. It's a white guy. Yeah. I never knew that. Nope. You weren't supposed to, you know, <laughs> and, and it's really interesting that he just, for whatever reasons, you know, he just decided these are my people and, and this is where I belong. And he lived his whole life that way. And I think the average person, if they know Johnny O's at all, they all, they know the one hit going the hand drive, which is kind of a Bo Diddley kind of thing mm -hmm. that he did, but he did, did he a was, lot. He was doing records all the way back in the 40s, Producer. all the way up yep. into the 70s, had a radio show, was was backing other bands, had his own band. And uh, then his son grew up around that. So his son was in the studio with people like T-Bone Walker, who, if you're a guitar nerd, T-Bone Walker is one of the all-time greats. I mean, he's major influence on everyone from Chuck Berry to Jimi Hendrix. I mean, a huge deal. And here's Shuggy Otis at like probably 10 years old standing in the studio watching T-Bone Walker record, which, you know, how many 10-year-olds get that chance? And many, many, many other important artists. And so by the time he was a kid, he was already playing, like, light in the barn on fire, you yeah. know, as a kid. So so in 1971, he got his own album. Of course he would, because his dad is Johnny Otis. And again, Johnny Otis was not just a musician, but he was a producer. He, was a, he would put together shows, reviews. I mean, he was one of those guys, right? So he yeah. had his hands everywhere. So of course he would have contacts with people at labels and be able to produce his son out of him. So Strawberry Letter 23 is really, uh, first of all, the lyrics are just beautiful and mystical. Uh, I mean, it sounds like something from a couple years before, right? With kind of the psychedelic lyrics and yeah. Um, being put down by this teenager. But the story is it's a, he has received 22 love letters from his girlfriend. And the song is the 23rd letter. Um, so, you know, that's why he starts with hello, my love. I heard a kiss from you. Um, those are the letters. And then in a little further down, you know, he's like um, a present from you, strawberry, strawberry letter 22. Um, the music plays. I sit in for a few. You know, what he's doing is he's just writing back her the 23rd letter. Yeah. And um, just 
I mean, I mean, honest, that's an amazing concept. It's a concept I have never heard in another, in any other song. Yeah. I got to give it to the kid, you know, a 17 year old coming up with that stuff in such, not just coming up with the concept because anybody can come up with the concept, but the way he wrote it, right. Yeah. The lyrics are just, they're just beautiful. And I think we can tell they're beautiful because, you know, the song has just lived on. And I believe it's kind of on the strength of those lyrics and the melody. Yeah. The melody's amazing. So the, the, the album went nowhere. Yeah. It, I mean, it charted a little bit on the art. I, I think, his version of that actually went into the top hundred, but it wasn't a big hit. But I think it, yeah. it made some money enough to keep the label happy. I think. Okay, so it broke the the top hundred. I think so. Yeah. Okay. And as you can see, it's it's just it's not as dancey, right? It's yeah. not as rhythmic. It's not as dancey. It's more of a straightforward love song almost. Yeah. Um, it's based on the lyrics and his guitar, really. Yeah. Um, now George Johnson was dating a cousin of Shuggy's, and while he was dating her, she introduced him to Shuggy's album. And when he got the album, he heard the song and he never forgot the song because he heard that he apparently he heard it like in 71 or 72. So up until this point and for about four or five years later, after this, the brothers Johnson had been studio musicians because they were amazing music musicians Thunder, thunder thumbs and lightning night, lightning licks. You don't get those nicknames by, you know, being shitty. Yeah. So they were hired by just about everybody. They were touring Europe. They played with almost every major R&B artist you can you can think of at that time. But more importantly, they were discovered by Quincy Jones. And so, you know, let me stop you right there, because it's an interesting comparison with the career of Shogi Otis, which we'll probably get into this later, kind of came and went with his albums. Like he put out albums, which Strawberry Letter 23 was successful. It went on, was covered by other people. But the rest of his music did not ever go anywhere. And I think he, that's because he rejected exactly the career that the Brothers Johnson had that was made them so successful. People were desperate to have him come and play on the records. And he was like, meh, I've already played with my dad's band since the time I was like 12 years old. I'd kind of rather just stay in the studio and work on my own records. By, mind you, he produced his own records. So it was just him. Played all the instruments, produced the records, wrote the songs. And you're right. So... He was like, I'm going to go it alone. And at the end of the day, they had the massive hit, but they also had this whole history and that all this, this machine behind them that he literally turned away from. Yeah. Actually, he has a story. I've seen, I've seen an interview with Shuggy where he said that the Rolling Stones asked for him to join the band and you know be their guitarist. So Mick Taylor had been the guitar player that replaced Brian Jones after Brian Jones had been fired and then died, uh, was in the band for a few years, but from what I've read, and I'm by no means an expert on this era of the Stones, from what I've read, he was a real pain in the ass. And they were kind of glad to see the back of him. And they weren't sure who they were going to get to replace him. They knew they wanted somebody really good. And Billy Preston had played with Shuggy Otis. And Billy Preston knew the Stones, probably through the Beatles connection, I'm, I'm going to guess. And he said, hey, I've got the guy you need to try out. And he got them to listen to the records. They were blown away and they called Shuggy Otis and said, hey, you know, do you want to come in and try out for the Stones? And he's like, nah, I don't think so. Good. And thinking, how many, I guess he was like 20 years old, 21 years old. How many 21 year olds would be like, Rolling Stones? No, nah, I'm good. Thanks. At the you height know, of the Rolling Stones. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it gives you an insight into his sort of career management, for lack mm -hmm. of a better term. Sammy Hagar, when he gets to call, hey, do you want to give up your solo career, which is already kind of booming? Join Van Halen. He's like, how soon can I be there? 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get in the car now. I won't drive 55 to get to your yeah. recording session with the uh, Van Halen. And, you know, Shuggy Otis did not do that. Yeah. Shuggy was like, I'm going my own way. And unfortunately for his career, he didn't always have the best business sense. At least at least the way his career worked out, that would be the implication. So, so from everything that I have read um, and and seen about Shuggy, people, not not a few people, have said that he was Prince before Prince. Yeah. And he um, sure looks like, if you see, yeah. you see video footage of him, of him it's younger. weird yeah. how much he looks like but, but he did the same stuff. He wrote everything. He arranged everything. He played all the instruments. Uh, he probably didn't have the gift for melody except for this one song that, but I don't think he cared. Yeah. I don't think he cared. He was about the instrument, right? He was about, he was about the music. He was about the sounds he could get from that guitar. He didn't care if it was a, if it was a melody that people liked, like whatever, I'm just yeah. trying to get this sound out of this guitar right now. So yeah, um, he didn't go anywhere. But on the other hand, well, he he's still touring. By the yeah. way, he's touring right now. <laughs> I don't know where he's at, but but I, uh, you know, I looked him up, and Shuggy Otis is is on the road. Yeah. So um, God bless him, man. He he gave the world a great song. So the brothers Johnson on uh, on these tours had hooked up with Quincy Jones. I think Quincy Jones realized uh, that these guys are really really talented. Not only could they play, but George Johnson had a beautifully sweet soul voice. And so he signed them up to A&M. Um, and their first album uh, was Look Out for Number One in 1976. And that went to number nine. Yeah. And he also had a hit. Uh, a, a, they also had another hit in Mother Jugs and Speed. Get the funk out of my face. So Strawberry Letter, again, was in um, Right on Time in 1977. And that was that went to number five on, on, the, pop, on the pop charts, as we mentioned earlier. Different than the Shooky song, different um, in the sense that I believe it was probably more danceable, a little more touch of funk. And the other thing was one, uh, two things, I think, and I'm curious what you think, um, but two things. One, I think George Johnson had a much sweeter soul voice. If you arrive and don't see me, I'm going to be with my I think he gave the song a very different uh, tenor because of his voice. A huge part of it, yeah. Yeah, he, his voice was just sweet. And then secondly, the bass. Um, so, yeah, the isolated bass on this song is just freaking amazing. And the other thing that they did, which they did a lot then, like Led Zeppelin famously did it, the panning. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, you're listening, especially if you're listening on the headphones, you get the bass coming in this ear, then the bass coming in that ear, and then the bass coming in this ear. Because it was cool back in the days when we used to have big speakers all around the room, and then the music would travel from yeah. speaker to speaker, right? So they did that, too. So the production, again, Quincy Jones. Well, and I was going to say, the th there are a lot of differences between the two records, between the Shuggy Otis version and their version. And the Shuggy Otis version, I mean, not to denigrate it, because it is it is. Mm -hmm. Pretty amazing, especially for as young as he was. The fact that he did this all basically in his dad's backyard, I think. Um, I like they had a studio in the backyard. He didn't go to like Capitol Records studios and record this. But it sounds almost like a demo. Kind of. For the Brother Johnson version, which kind comes of. in. And then Quincy Jones is he's one of the great producers of that era. And he really brings out every part of the song that can kind of be uh, improved on. He does a little bit. And you're saying the bass. I think the, I do think that George 
has better voice than Drew Gillis. I mean, he does. I think for a pop sensibility in any case. Mm -hmm. And then also just like the way that Quincy Jones has produced the record and the, the, the different volumes of the instruments and the tones mm -hmm. of the instruments to my ear, it sounds better. It just, it was recorded. They probably spent a lot more money on the equipment in that studio and the microphones. And he also just has an ear, really mm -hmm. good ear for getting better sounds that Shuggy Otis Amazingly enough, who was only like 18 years old or whatever, when he did this, really didn't have that that ear that Quincy Jones had developed over 20-something years of being a producer. So, I mean, it just sounds great, and it's a better sounding record to my ear. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I do think the Shuggy Otis version is very cool, Which is but it's a, it's a much more spare version, and it's a much more intimate version. I think so. It's, it's like him it's singing to like the woman. Hit. Right. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think the brothers Johnson are singing to an audience. Yeah. Right. They're singing to an audience. They're singing to a dance floor. As a dance record. Yeah. I think there's no contest. Yeah. For sure. Um, you know, but I will give Shuggy credit. It is just melodically just beautiful. He and came weird. up beautifully. And let's say it's weird. It's like a lot of melodies and songs, you know, they'll be recycled ad nauseum. And you'll hear like, there's a lot of songs you'll hear and you go, oh, that sounds vaguely familiar. It's like, yeah, because it was that melody was around in like 1580. And there was somebody with a lute singing that same basic melody and they've just recycled it over and over again. Uh, you know, like Love Me Tender by Elvis basically existed with slightly different lyrics 200 years before Elvis Presley was born. I mean, so, I mean, there's a lot of vocal melodies that are familiar and sure. they're comfortable to mm -hmm. us because they've, They've just basically been around. It's like Christmas carols. Yeah. You're comfortable with them. That is That's not them. the case with the Shuggy Otis song. That vocal melody of his is very unique. It's very, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but it's like he's doing things with a vocal melody that people just really don't usually do. No. Because it's way more complicated. It's not as catchy, mm -mm. but he really commits to it. He Builds the whole song around that melody, and it works. And yeah. it worked really well for the Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge hit. Made their album go platinum. I remember Summer of 77. It's a perfect summer song, and it was a great release great release strategy for them because I remember people riding around in the summer of 77 and you heard this beautiful song playing out of their, you know, coming out of their cars. And I remember, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm going to embarrass myself. I would be at the basketball courts. I wouldn't really be playing basketball. Uh, my buddies would be. I would go out there for a couple dribbles, but I really am horrible. Not just my height, but I just can't play basketball. But anyway, we would have the boom boxes and like this would be playing and we would like yeah. play Strawberry Alert 23 over and over. So, um, yeah, it, it just it, you're right. It's not catchy, but it's catchy. Yeah. Right. I mean, the way it's written, you would think, oh, my God, that would never catch on. Oh, but it does. It's yeah. just magical. Um, and so I want to just, before we kind of get to the end here, I want to talk about the bridge, which is this freaking amazing guitar solo. Um, originated by Shuggy, originated by a 17 year old when he originally did it, right? Released it when he was 18, but this is a kid doing this guitar solo. So, um, What's funny is that I always thought it was a freaking organ because I never even assumed that a guitar could make that type of sound. Yeah. And then when a man known as Lightning Licks, right, George Johnson, 
a man who has been hired to be a session musician for like the top of the line R&B artists around the world, he couldn't replicate it. And so they had to bring in another like the master guitar player of that period, uh, Lee Rittenauer. Right. And Lee, jazz guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so Lee Rittenauer was able to replicate it for the album. Well, what's funny though. So here's really an interesting thing. Like there's like you can A and B on these songs. So one of the things that really stuck out to me on the two versions, the Shuggy version and the Brothers Johnson version, if you listen to them, the Brothers Johnson version, when they go to this guitar part, which is, you know, I don't know exactly, I didn't look up exactly what tones or what amps he used or anything. To me, it sounds like a double track guitar. So he's playing the same thing once and he goes back and he plays the same thing again and they play them at the same time. And it makes a very distinctive sound. And I think that's what's going on. If he's not doing that, he's using a, a pedal or an effect to replicate the double track sound. That's a very specific sound. And it was actually really popular in like jazz fusion and stuff. Mm. Uh, and in fact, in really good jazz bands, they'll do it live. You'll have two guitar players will be playing the same thing at the same time. It's very cool. Um, anyway, and I, I suspect that that's what Shuggy Otis did. I suspect that's what Lee Rittenauer did. And but what's interesting is when you listen to the Brothers Johnson version, it goes into that part pretty seamlessly. And it, for lack of a better term, it makes sense as you're listening. You don't really question it. Just like you're listening to the one song and then it goes into this other part that is very different. It is a, it is almost like a different song, just like patched on there. But the way they do it, you just go along and you don't really think about it. That is not the case in the Shuggy Otis version. Shuggy Otis version, it does sound like a different song and it does sound like it's kind of just stitched on there. The transition is clunkier. Mm -hmm. The transition that the Brother Johnson and Quincy Jones put together works in a way that's actually better to my mind yeah. than the Shuggy Otis version. And my suspicion is Shuggy Otis just wasn't as skillful of a producer. Quincy Jones. To make it put it all together was yeah. Quincy Jones could do it all day long. Yeah. And but Shuggy Otis was 17 or 18 years old doing this in his dad's backyard studio. And it's like, it just kind of comes out of nowhere and it's cool, but you do notice it. And it seems like it's not necessarily part of the song. It's not as integral to the song or integrated, integrated would be a better way to put that. It's not as integrated into the song as it is on the Brother Johnson version. And that's something like, I think anybody can really hear. If you just listen to them back to back, like, oh yeah, you know, they they just kind of like, do, do, do. It just kind of like takes off in a jet in the uh, Brother Johnson version. And then on the Shuggy Otis version, it's like, dun, 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 dun. It's like all of a sudden it's just like a different thing. Yeah, yeah. So that was, to me, is a very interesting choice that he made. A little show-offy. Well, I mean, show-offy, but also it really sets the song off. You know, mm -hmm. it really sets off what he was doing uh, and, and set a bar, obviously not anybody could do that. So you know, it was show off, but it worked. Yeah. It, it's Again, I thought it was freaking an organ. I never, ever assumed that was a guitar. Cause I was like, Oh, well, obviously guitar can't do that. <laughs> so, um, but the brothers Johnson uh, to show you what a creature of why, how badly they needed Quincy Jones. So he brought them together in 76, right? Signed him to A&M and then he produced them. And then in, 80, they had the, again, if you have, if you've never heard the album light up the night um, and you're into R and B and, and kind of funk um, with the, this, it was probably the most disco of all their albums, by the way. Um, 
I would recommend that. So that was in that was in 1980. Then they decided to produce their own album, which of course artists always do, right? Yeah. Oh, we can do this. We don't need to cut him in. And they did an album in 1981 called Winners, and it was a loser. It it failed. And they broke up in 82. In 82, they split, decided to do their own, do their own things, and they became session musicians. Um, they had another brother, and he joined the L.A. Fire Department. He was, you know, just a brother they threw in. And um, he had no nickname that we know of. And and then they uh, kind of, you know, would do reunions here and there, but they essentially kind of disappeared. I think they came back, did an album, didn't do much. But essentially, their Quincy Jones years from 76 to 80 were really, boom, they killed it. Well, so what's interesting is, you know, you're talking about how much they needed Quincy Jones. Now, Quincy Jones had gone to Shuggy Otis in like 76, around the same time. Said, hey, I really want to work with you. I want to produce a record for you. And again, Shuggy with the really, really stellar business acumen said, nah, I'm just going to do my own thing. And was, you know, selling slightly more records than I am, which mm-hmm. stopped that many records, you know, all things considered. Um, considering how good the guy was. Yeah. And you just think like, oh, if only you would have. If only. If you know, only. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and you're talking about Prince. Prince had a really good business sense. He did. Like a really, really Genius. good business sense. So he would have said, Quincy? Sure. Let's see what happens. And then maybe he would have broken up with him later. Yeah, but, but I'm writing the contract. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so Shuggy, you know, he just makes you think like, gosh, here the Brothers Johnson had this huge hit, huge hits over and over again with Quincy Jones, what could have happened with Shuggy Otis? Because he was really, everyone that knew him back in those early days, from what I understand, just saw him as the next big thing. Yes, they did. They did. Because but- he was so young, so talented. And unfortunately, he was, you know, he's, he did, he's been pretty upfront that he had some addiction issues that did, did derail him pretty hard for a long time. Uh, which, frankly, if you're 17 years old and you're, writing kit records, you probably are not. I would probably make, do the same thing. You're probably not going to listen to other people telling you not yeah. to do. But Louis Johnson, when he got married, he uh, walked down the aisle to uh, to this song, to Strawberry Letter 23, which I thought was very touching. Now, did he did he walk down to the aisle with Shuggy's version or their version? Ah, good question. I would assume his. Yeah. Because he probably, you know, his brother had such a beautiful that's, voice. That's right? true. It's probably yeah. owed to his brother. Um, but he died uh, in 2015. They found him dead in his Las Vegas home. That's right. With a GI, a gastrointestinal bleed, which is really sad. Because yeah. I can't tell you how much I love the Brothers Johnson, man. Um, so closing this up, Strawberry Letter 23. Should it have been a hit? You know, I, I'm, I'm lingering here because... I think I could have seen a world in which it was not because of what you point out with that guitar section. And I could have seen that throwing people off like, Oh, why are you putting this rock section in here? Uh, you know, in this, in this soul song. But I mean, obviously it was a hit. Obviously it ranked and certainly I can hear it now, but I really wonder at the time if I, I don't think it was an automatic hit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not like one of those things like, again, uh, float on or rock your boat by the Hughes corporation. It's like those, you know, are going to be hits. This is a lot more of a complicated song and complicated song. A lot of times complicated songs are not hits. So it's interesting to me that it was a hit. I, I don't think it was guaranteed in any way, shape or form. I think, I think it definitely should have been a hit, but it was an acquired taste. I think it was a song and I think this is kind of right. I think it's born out in its, tr- its chart action. People heard it yeah. and they had to hear it a couple of times. And then once you heard it a couple of times, 
you're like, oh shit, that rocks. Well, and you know, it, that actually brings us to something that people don't really realize. I think listeners are people that don't get into playing music or whatever. They, they just listen to it. So a lot of the times people say, oh, well, why do we care about the producer? Well, big role of a good producer is matching an artist with material. Because just because you're a good performer or a guitar player or other musician doesn't mean you can write songs worth a crap. Whoever it was that decided to bring this song in, the Brothers Johnson maybe would have never had the level of success that they did if they didn't have the ability to interpret mm -hmm. this incredibly written song. But Suge Yotis didn't have the ability to present it to the public in a way that it was going to be a giant hit. And it's interesting how often that happens. Now, it's not always that sometimes the artist never even makes the record. They just write the song and make the demo, and then you never mm -hmm. hear the demo at all. You only hear the hit. But that's actually pretty common. And, and I don't think the average listener really realizes, oh, there's a whole machine behind a lot of hit records because recognizing your limitations. And if Shuggy Otis would have recognized like, hey, I'm not that good of a business guy. Maybe I should let other people handle that part of it and I'll just play my ass off and write songs. Then I think his career would have probably taken a different trajectory. Yeah. Because if he would have had a, a producer like Quincy Jones, Quincy could have heard this and go, oh, shit, I could do something with this. Yeah, exactly. But but when you're right, when you match up the amazing magical melody that um, that Shuggy came up with and you match up one of the greatest producers in the history of music and Quincy Jones, when you match up just the sweetest soul R&B voice um, that that George Johnson just had an amazing, beautiful voice. And then you match up those nasty Bass, yeah. bass lines. And um, yeah, I think it, I think it all worked. Yeah. So would it be a hit today? I think the answer is it already is a hit today because that melody, the vocal melody has been used. You would know this more than me because you're more familiar with this kind of music, but I know Beyonce used it. Mm -hmm. And I think Tupac Out, used it. Outcast all, used yeah, it. Yeah, Outcast. Never meant to make your daughter cry. was a massive hit. I mean, it wasn't today, but I mean, fairly recently, it's the same. It's like, mm -hmm. so I think it not only would it be hit, I think it is a hit. I think it's just continuing to keep going. And I'm sure somebody else will probably write another song with that same thing. And they don't know at this point to them, it's now the equivalent of this, you know, Scottish folk melody from 1600. It's just something they grew up on. And so they can use it when they're coming up with their lyrics. I think that's a really good point. Um, I, I might be a little different. Uh, my concern is the attention span of today's music listener, today's music consumer, um, with Spotify and with other, um, you know, algorithms. Yeah. Uh, my, my concern is that it takes a couple listens and even in the song itself, you got to listen to it for like a minute and a half. And then you're like, oh shit. Okay. I get this nice. You know, this is nice. I don't know if people listen to music that long anymore. Yeah, that's um, true. I don't know. So I don't, I I like your point and your point is well taken. I think I'm a little more down on today's music consumer. And I think that they want, you know, sugar highs. <laughs> and I don't know if they would wait for this thing to sink in, but Hey man, that's why we got this show. And by the way, if any of you have some songs or that you would like us to discuss on how the was that a hit? Uh, please, you know, go ahead and put those in the comments. We'd love to do a song. If you guys have some requests, um, you know what our specialties are? I'm kind of the R&B funk guy, uh, though not a musician, and Tim is the rock guy. 
So let's um, say rock and roll guy. I don't I actually don't know much about rock. Like oh, once, true. It, once they dump the roll, you lose me and I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, if you like what you hear, like and subscribe. It really means a lot. And we would love to have you coming back every week. Thank you. you